It's February 16th, 2023. This is Rook. Well, hi there. Welcome to episode 239 of Rook. There is no such thing as normal in the Islamic Republic of Iran. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam, Dustan Aziz. Durur Bashama. There is no such thing as normal in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Recently, there's been talk, fueled by the regime itself, of course, and aided by media like the Financial Times, that Iran is somehow returning to normal after months of volatility. Let's set aside the fact that protests continue in all kinds of forms, and that there is a clear mass-majority desire for regime change, and that the Islamic Republic is teetering on the precipice of collapse in every way, including economic disarray. The normalcy case seems to be that, with a revolutionary fatigue setting in, Iranians inside Iran are back to their daily lives, going to shops, trying to stay employed, driving in the streets, whatever. And sure, let's concede that these daily rituals are continuing, in some cases as before, but let's not call things normal. There's no such thing as normal in the Islamic Republic. Oh, there is a continuity to repression and suppression and the continuance of what appears to be a functioning society at a surface level. But let's dispense with the term normal because we must never normalize the antics and regulations of a regime that people despise. And so the news emerged today that a female teacher in the northern region of Mazandaran was fired for playing a love song in class and sharing the video of children singing along to it in social media. The song is a cheesy ditty that includes such shocking lyrics as I'll drink alcohol. It would hardly be noticeable as something provocative in almost any other context. And this female teacher is dutifully wearing her hijab in the video, not even singing herself, but for this outrageous crime of allowing her students some singing time, she's been sacked. Imagine being fired for playing a cute love song. That is not normal nor should it be. And the hardest part is that for Iranians listening to this right now, there will be absolutely no surprise that she lost her job. Hell, citizens of the Islamic Republic have been fired or detained or tortured or even executed for less. Let's not forget that this latest revolution was kickstarted when Masa Amini was killed for wearing her headscarf the wrong way. Let's not ever call this normal. It's not. It's not normal that a couple cannot dance in front of Azadi Tower in Tehran. It's not normal that you cannot attend a co-ed social event or gym in the 21st century. It's not normal that you cannot legally ride a bicycle if you're a woman. Of course, people do. They do all of these things defiantly, and sometimes they're caught, and sometimes they're not. But it's not normal that they're breaking the law by trying to have these basic freedoms. It's not normal that you cannot hold hands with your boyfriend in public. It's not normal that you cannot have a beer or any alcohol while watching a football game or any time. It's not normal that you cannot sing, play, or perform rock music. Hell, if you're a woman, you cannot sing or record publicly at all, unless it's in some gender-specific hall. A couple of months ago, when as part of our Voices from Inside Iran series, we were doing a phone interview with a young woman in Shiraz who'd bravely been on the front lines of demonstrations, I asked her what she most looked forward to in a future free Iran. I thought she might come back with some grand answer about democracy or human rights or freedoms. You know what she replied? I want to be able to walk my dog. It's not normal to not be able to walk your dog. 
There's no such thing as normal in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that's why so many of us cannot wait for this regime to be gone. Coming up on this new edition of Rook, a feature hour interview with the psychologist and academic Dr. Fatali Mokadam on his new book, Political Plasticity, The Future of Democracy and Dictatorships, plus the Rook Roundtable. This is Rook, episode 239. Is democracy in Iran achievable? In the studio in Toronto, set to go with episode 239, Dr. Fatali M. Mokadam, our only guest today, as he should be. He is, yes. uh, I'm so happy to have him back on the show. Uh, such an interesting, provocative, um, thought-provoking uh, academic and writer, uh, the Iranian-British psychologist, author, professor of psychology, and the director of an interdisciplinary program in cognitive science at Georgetown University in D.C. He's just put out a new book called Political Plasticity, The Future of Democracy and Dictatorships. And uh, I just finished the book a couple of days ago. And um, wow, I can't wait to get into this with him. I have to, I think I'm going to begin the interview mm -hmm. by issuing a disclaimer, not Maybe not a disclaimer, but just warning people and him <laughs> that that not everybody's going to like what he has to say. Yeah, I mean, what you know? Well, just from um, you know the looking, blurb looking at the blurb and yeah. yeah. Well, the book is 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 great. It's amazing, and it's so. Um, I mean, it's a deep dive mm -hmm. into democracy and dictatorship and thousands of years of history. Right. So it's not something that we're going to be able to fully comprehensively address in a one-hour interview, but. The upshot of it is that democracy is tough mm -hmm. and that we tend to, what he means by political plasticity, I'll, he'll do it when we come comes on the show, but but um, the, the, he means whether the elasticity or the plasticity of, of, of politics, whether things can change in societies. And he argues that um, if you zoom out and mm -hmm. over history, patterns um, replicate and there is a continuity of behavior particularly when it comes to authoritarianism and dictatorships so it's very hard for example to have a revolution and mm -hmm. completely transformatively change from a dictatorship like we currently have in, in Iran to a full um, actualized democracy mm -hmm. um, I don't, I'm not sure that he would call his book pessimistic, but I think some people would say it might be because he's kind of, you know, he's saying, here's the reality. The reality is there's all these things that happen and how did they end up? How did the Russian Revolution, right. uh, how did the Arab Spring end up? How did, how did, how did, And he talks about the continuity of behavior. And, and you know, we've talked about this a bit on the show mm -hmm, too. Is, definitely. Uh, are, are Iranians capable, are we, as a, a not, not because they're not smart, not because we don't want it, but as a as a collective, can Iranians do democracy? You mm -hmm. know, because it hasn't existed a, a liberal democracy in the way that Canada exists uh, hasn't existed in Iran. So that's gonna that's a new phenomenon, and depending on how entrenched the behavior is, how do you shake that up? Mm -hmm. Right. It's funny as you were saying that, I was kind of thinking in my head, am I? 
feeling optimistic hearing this or am I feeling like I'm losing hope as I'm hearing this? Because on one hand, yes, I mean, it speaks to the struggle of reaching that point. But on the other hand, it's kind of giving me a sense of, okay, well, it is difficult and maybe that's why it's taking a long time. And, you know, yeah, so I mean, look at two it, sides it, of the same coin. When we say it's a marathon and not a sprint, yeah. sometimes we're superficially just referring to when the regime gets toppled. Mm -hmm. That's the first part. Yes, right? exactly. That's the first part. Long then it's ahead. avoiding another Khomeini, you know, another regime uh, that's uh, that's something that we that's distasteful, right? Mm -hmm. So listen, I, this is a very crude um, analysis or, or, or summary of his book. I wait for him. Don't wait. Don't don't listen to me right now. Wait, <laughs> wait for him to come on and, and explain this. But I, I am going to challenge him a little bit because I think because I'm not sure what, you know, on a, on a social, cultural, and maybe even political level, we know what a difference it's going to make getting rid of this regime, you know? How do you, you know, how do you not value um, freedom of expression for, mm -hmm. for women, for LGBTQ people, for, I mean, the, the just fundamental things that will change that I, you know, um, in that opening essay there, mm -hmm. walking your freaking dog, you exactly. know? Exactly. Um, so... Dr. Fatali M. Mokadam coming up. Uh, he, the one of the stars of that Netflix series, how to how to become a tyrant. If you haven't seen that yet, um, fantastic series. Check it out. He's one of the the people in that series. It's really really worth seeing. Um, how are you doing, Shaya? Doing good. Bega, you're doing well. Doing good. You know, another day. Oh. Going through Twitter and whatnot. I, I spent a lot of time on Twitter the last 24 hours. I guess. Oh dear. My, yeah. con my condolences. Yeah, yeah. exactly. How I, got, I got sucked into the, <laughs> the, the Persian Twitter. The Iran vortex? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and what, um, what did you get sucked into? I mean, it just started with one video of the protests going mm -hmm. on right now, and then it just kind of spiraled from there. So. so this is a good thing, right? Are we are we energized by what's, uh, as far as I can tell, mm -hmm. I'll segue into the roundtable here. We'll do a short roundtable before we get to Dr. Mokadam. But as far as I can tell, there's demonstrations. There have been demonstrations today in Tehran, in Iran, mm -hmm. something to coincide with the 40th day um, anniversary of the, the executions. Of, that's right. So is, is that what you've been yeah, saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. what I was referring to. So um, it, like you mentioned, it's the 40th um, day of passing of Mehdi Karami and Mohammad Hosseini. So two of the individuals who were executed. Um, and the protests that we're referring to, they took place in Tehran, Esfahan, Izeh, Mashhad, Karaj, just to name a few of the different cities. Um, and yeah, definitely energizing to see individuals. It's been a while. Yeah. It's been a while since we saw, we've seen all kinds of defiance inside Iran. But since we've seen, other than in Zahedan or in Kurdistan, that 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 kind of action in the streets mm -hmm. that we saw in Tehran today. Yeah, and I mean, I think we talked about it on on the last episode, saying that following the Bisodoy Bahman, we were going to see some of these protests. So it's nice to see that you know we talked about it, we were anticipating it, and now we're seeing the videos from it. But the flip side to that is, of course, there's reports of tear gas being used and you know brutality again. So that part of it is still heartbreaking for sure. Mm -hmm. um, it was. The, was Anything more you want to say about the protest? No, just, you know, videos of it coming out and, okay. again, mixed feelings. Mm -hmm. What's the the mixed feeling part? Well, I mean, it, like you said, it's energizing, but still, every time there's these protests, it's met with well, force. Well, yeah, that's, and, that's yeah, to be so. expected, yeah. Yeah. There, there was something um, you were saying to me earlier. I don't want to out you on this, but <laughs> I, I think it's not – it's also not a – 
um, not out of context. It's, it's germane to both the, the the little essay that I just did mm-hmm. and, and to having Dr. Mogadam come on. You were saying one of the things you're concerned about that we talked about early in the uprising, the revolution, is that is that I mean it's it's one thing for the regime to signal that it's going to moderate, and we all go. This is bullshit, mm-hmm. Nayaki, fuck you, you know, whatever, we don't agree, this is PR. But it's another that when there is some moderation mixed with the exhaustion of the, the public in terms of wanting to keep up the, the revolution and everything, that that there's a slide into acceptance uh, on the inside Iran that, this is not me talking, this is your, am I, Am I paraphrasing? Am I explaining um, what you're a, a worried about? A little bit. I mean, I don't even know if I would call it a worry. It's just something that I noticed over the last couple of days, really. Um, I have some friends on Instagram who have traveled to Iran recently, which in and of itself I was really shocked to see. But, you know, I expected to see <clears throat> their stories and to see protests and to see, you know, um, demonstrations out on the streets and, you know, Did the you same. Did really? Well, I did. did I, you really I, expect I, I to really see that? thought. I mean, not your even your friends going to visiting the north of Tehran. Or not something. that they were going to take part in it per se, but mm. even just in passing, that there okay. would be you know yeah. some sort of a video or you know some of the writings on the wall that we've seen shared mm. in places like Persian Twitter and whatnot. But what I ended up seeing is is actually quite the opposite. I've been seeing videos of you know people in cafes and semi-concerts and coffee shops in the north of Tehran and things like that and all you see is these images of you know young women with no hijab which is great but it's a very different image than the protests it's a very different story that these images are telling what is your takeaway I I don't know if I really have a takeaway it's just what it made me think about is you know I hope that we don't give in to just that I hope that this fight continues and that you know by having lax rules and regulations on the hijab we don't isn't it possible for um, brave women or folks in 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 the north of Tehran to defiantly not wear a hijab uh, and uh, also to be wanting the revolution to continue. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think... It doesn't it, necessarily suggest that everyone's quiescent, given up. Yeah, I don't think it's the, mutually exclusive for sure, but I think it was just the surprise of seeing those images after five months well, of what seeing... Did you, but, but, okay. I mean, even in the, the heat of the protests, yeah. uh, a cousin of mine went back to Iran because one of our family members had died and, you know, came back and said, no, there's pockets of, I mean, mm-hmm. we've, we've heard yeah, of pockets of Tehran where you wouldn't even think anything's happening. So that's part and parcel of the, you know, you know I don't believe that you thought your friends were going to come come back no, with videos listen, of I, like, you know, I definitely Che Guevara, didn't think they were like, going you know, there to, you know, partake in, in you know, the heat no, of the action that they or would, anything but like I mean, that. I, but, but, but what did you expect them to see? We we're not, you know we know that there isn't tons of action yeah, in the streets absolutely. right now. All yeah, right. but I think it was just the surprise. I think after five months of just seeing this on Twitter and, yes. and being so focused yes. on the revolution, well, that's what the regime says. Yeah, I guess it that is. that says but that we're just we're seeing stuff from you know Manitou and the American government, and we shouldn't believe anything. <laughs> yeah. So now you're echoing their. Uh, oh sentence. God, no, no, never. I would never echo anything <laughs> that the regime says. But um, I, I want to get Shia's take on this because we briefly talked about it. And stay, he I stay out of it. He Shia. mentioned something. I, that I, I counsel was. you to not get yeah. involved in this. <laughs> yeah, I think what I'm going to say is echoing like <laughs> regime things. I prefer to. No, stop. what 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 do you what? what no, do, actually, what? I asked Pega that how many of the people you follow actually they live in inside Iran and she said like two person three person mm-hmm. and so for me as a person who, who like a lot of 
people that I'm following that are inside mm-hmm. Iran. You don't have any friends outside of Iran. <laughs> yeah, as other I than you. <laughs> <laughs> We yes. just became friends on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, please. Sorry. Go so, ahead. yeah, based on that, I mean, uh, it's I'm not surprised but what Pega told, you know, uh-huh. because, yeah, I mean, people pass to leave. So they yes. 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 They, they Which doesn't make it normal. Doesn't yeah, make it a normal and country. And I don't have a problem with that. Right. It's just, for just me, ma- it was just it's the it's element it's of just surprise. It's just, of course, over a, over a period of time, people mm-hmm. have to, um, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point that, I mean, there is no normal there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there's, that's a very good point on the essay, yeah. But Thank do you, you think we have a normal yeah. here? I mean, we're starting to see, you know, advertisements for all sorts of different Nauru celebrations oh, and things like that. I thought you like meant in that. Canada. No, I'm like, not saying... Well, yeah, there's more normal. <laughs> yeah, I can walk a dog here. People can ride, ride their bike, know. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean uh, in the sense of Iranians living outside of Iran. Um no, I think this is an ongoing, as we said with, uh, spoke to uh, Shirin Nasseri, who was here uh, mm-hmm. about her, her take on Nauru's. I think this is an ongoing tug of war yeah. with ourselves. You know, how much do we, in what ways do we return to our, our old, you know, uh, patterns of behavior? Uh, and in what ways do we not feel comfortable with that? Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, it's everybody's own, their own choice. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't. I personally don't get the let's go back to partying every weekend, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with our fancy galas thing. It doesn't doesn't totally work for me. Yeah. Don't begrudge anybody dressing up and you know <laughs> wanting to have a good time. But but uh, I think the uh, pacing ourselves doesn't have to involve running in the direction of um, effusive, uh, you know, joyous celebration mm-hmm. uh, that we have to kind of. Um, uh, but you know, the, everyone has spoken to the fact that I thought actually Shireen did a good job of it on on Monday, kind of saying, "Look, uh, um, I still dance for myself. I'm not going to dance on Instagram and uh, do all of that." But mm-hmm. I, but I also believe that we should, for example, respect the tr- the Persian tradition of Noruz and mm-hmm. and you know celebrate it and have a half Definitely. scene and that, that type of thing. Um, but this is uh, this is where you know uh, after six months, this is where we're going to be at right yeah. uh, almost 6 months um what did you what did you think of have you we talked a little bit about this just before I, I get to Dr. Moradem this Munich conference mm-hmm. which is the 7th tomorrow this, yeah no, tomorrow tomorrow yeah yeah um this is the one that that now I see Reza Pahlavi Masih Alenjad mm-hmm. and and Nazanin Boniadi amongst others are attending that's right uh What's kind of, I don't know how significant this is in terms of, you know, um, symbolically or practically, but seems to me this is one of the first institutional gatherings in the world, like the Munich, you know, mm-hmm. a global um, happening where there are representatives. I don't really actually know. I'm speaking without knowing. I don't know if they're official representatives or well, they're just he- going. But where there are representatives of Iran and Iranians mm-hmm. that are not the regime. Yeah. I mean, there's representatives on stages at demonstrations, mm-hmm. and there's the the meeting with Macron or Trudeau or whatever. But in terms of a something that feels a little more official, mm-hmm. this is is this not kind of a big deal? It is. It's a very big deal, and I think the it's exactly what you mentioned. It's that it was the first invitation to opposition figures or leaders 
whichever word you, you want to use um, for something. Opposition humans. <laughs> sure. Yeah. For um, for them to attend a conference um, on, a, on an international stage, I guess. Um, and the most important piece in this is that this conference, typically they would extend um, an invite to the Islamic Republic. And this is the first time that they've actually not invited the Islamic Republic and instead invited opposition figures. Mm. So I think that's where, you know, this is really a big yeah. deal. And I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, what what's going to come of that tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Anything else on the, for the roundtable, Shia? Uh, no. Let's get to, do we have Dr. Mugadam? Yes, yes. All yes. right. Um, before we get to him, uh, I should mention that we now have our Patreon page set up. So if you would like to and can support, what are you doing? Well, You're showing it to me? Yeah, I'm showing you some of our patrons, oh. actually. We've got some. Oh, should I say their names? Yeah, we can shout oh, out okay, some of okay, our, yeah. our patrons now. Uh, I want to, well, yeah, I mean, we, we said we were going to do this. Uh, here, could you bring this a little closer? Yeah, of course. <laughs> So, uh, let me see here. Um, so, so you can go to our website now, rookmedia.com, and uh, press the support us button. It'll take you to our Patreon page, mm -hmm. where you can either be a bronze or a silver or a gold page uh, member uh, right. on Patreon, and you get uh, you know a little extra access, and you get some uh, correspondence and some things from us, depending on which category you are. There's everyone's a winner though. Yes. Everyone gets a small gift, <laughs> no, <laughs> no matter what. We do uh, support uh, we, our, the activities here at Rook and the ongoing mission to build a, an audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity via crowdsourcing, and um, this is really helpful uh, to, to have uh, Rook members on our Patreon page. So thank you to, let me just, uh, I'm going to do a couple of names each, each episode. I want to thank uh, Ali Sharma. I actually know Ali Sharma has been, a long-time patron yeah. of the program. Um, Farshad Naqibi, uh, Sarah Swanson, mm -hmm. the very Iranian um, name, Sarah Swanson. <laughs> Appreciate her uh, her tuning in and being a sponsor. Uh, to Tomas Kadlas, is that how you think we'd say that? I, I think so. Tomas Kadlas, K-A-D-L-A-S. Tom Cruise, Tom Khurus yeah. Uh, and, but, uh, is there anybody's name I was not supposed to say? That one. Okay, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> and Kayvon Behram. Kayvon Behram, who is a silver member. Yeah. Thank you, you guys. Um, we super appreciate people coming, uh, um, Rook members on our Patreon page. Again, you just go to rookmedia.com, press the support us button, and uh, you'll be hearing from us. You can also find us on the Patreon website as well. If, you, right. if you're familiar with Patreon, you can just search Rook Media and you can find us that way as well. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. Now, people can, can, do people, can they only pay cash to be a uh, um, part of our Patreon membership or can they like I mean with their credit card or can they can they barter things like pelts and <laughs> fancy chayis I don't know if we've gotten there peste, yet you know yeah not uh, not there uh, yet uh, right now because I'm up for that if they if they want to send us peste <laughs> yeah definitely know, we can have or lavoshak please Lava if anyone wants to send us some of that uh, thank you very much Pega thank uh, you thank you Shia let's get to our our feature guest today my feature guest today is an Iranian British psychologist author, professor of psychology, and the director of an interdisciplinary program in cognitive science at Georgetown University. You may be familiar, as I was, as I was saying, with Dr. Fatali M. Moradam from his memorable appearances in the Netflix
Netflix series, How to Become a Tyrant. Dr. Mogadam was born in Iran. He moved to England with his family at the age of eight. He received his formal education in England and then returned to Iran before the revolution of 1979 to do academic work. He was researching in Tehran during the hostage-taking crisis and the early years of the Iran-Iraq War. In 1984, he moved back to the West. He kind of had to um, and spent a period at McGill in Montreal where he did research on cultural diversity before working uh, at Georgetown University, which is where he is now. He has conducted experimental and field research in numerous cultural contexts and published extensively on radicalization, intergroup conflict, human rights, and the psychology of dictatorship and democracy, which is our focus today. His books include the psychology of dictatorship, threat to democracy, the psychology of democracy, Shakespeare and the experimental psychologist, and his latest book entitled Political Plasticity, the Future of Democracy and Dictatorship. This latest book is the focus of our interview today on how continuity in dictatorships may be seen with the case of the current uprising in Iran and, of course, the aspirations of Iranians for fundamental change to end this uh, dictatorship right now. Dr. Fatali M. Mokadam joins me from Washington, D.C. today. Hello, sir. Hello, and I'm really delighted, delighted to be with you and honored as well. I so much enjoy your talks and chats, and I'm wonderful to be back with you. Uh, it's it's my honor, and I've just, um, as you know, uh, I, I told you in a phone call earlier, I finished your book and and this week, and uh, really, really found it um, so interesting. Although I'll, I'll issue a disclaimer uh, to the audience, if not to you, that, that I do worry that in this conversation, in this nuanced conversation, some of those out there in our audience who are particularly enthusiastic about uh, a revolution in Iran right now creating fundamental change may um, be less than exhilarated by some of the the things you have to say or some of the realities as you see it um, but I suppose you're not that's not a surprise to you uh, no my my research on what I call political plasticity uh, that is how fast how much, uh, political change can take place and can't take place. I see it as realistic in the sense that we have to look at the situation critically and decide how can we change things and where can we find possibilities where we look for long-term rather than short-term change. So it's a strategic approach using political plasticity as a guide. Let me let me get you to drill down a little further on that definition so everybody's clear because it's an interesting one. I think it's a it's a term you've coined, political plasticity. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the point you see you seem to want to to most underscore is that plasticity or change when it comes to patterns of political and cultural behavior in society is challenging. It's also rare. Um, so give us give us this definition. What what is it that you mean if you can take a moment or two by political plasticity? Absolutely. Well, I think we've all heard of brain plasticity and the mainstream orthodox research focuses on the brain and plasticity in the brain. What I'm pointing out is that the world outside us is also a huge constraint on how we can change. It's not just hardwiring within the brain, it's hardwiring outside the brain. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you a simple example. One of the chapters in my book on political plasticity asks, why do we still have leaders? If we look back over the last 10, 12,000 years uh, of settlements in human societies, we have been led by leaders who typically are older males and they make the critical quest uh, decisions, for example, on whether we go to war or not. Think about the last few decades where someone like George W. Bush, Tony Blair, they made the critical decision to invade Afghanistan, invade Iraq, both disasters from my perspective. But who could stop them? Who could stop them? We have this tradition, and what I'm saying is, this is a long-term tradition. After the revolution in the United States, we still have not had a woman in the White House. So that's what I mean by limited political plasticity. Right. Even though the book is called Political Plasticity, your actual point is that political plasticity is rare or limited or difficult. Um, ah, not always. Not always. Not there, always. Are examples, there are examples in the book of where political plasticity is high. Let me give you an example. Think of the ways in which people's attitudes towards gaze has changed over the last few decades, how rapid that has been. Think of the ways in which women have broken through in education. I'm so excited by that. And I see the future of Iran in women's hands. That is the future. That is where political plasticity is high. Let me come back to that. That's And that's how you end your book. And, and that's an affirmative note that I want to come back to. You, in terms of continuity of behavior, um, mm -hmm. which you spend a fair bit of time on in this book. And it's it's so interesting for me. You start your book with this anecdote about being in Iran in 1977. You're visiting family when you were a student in London, as I said in the introduction. And, and you find yourself in a gorgeous new Italian-designed opulent home in Tehran that suggests the economic future is bright in Tehran, that, that Iran is full of modernism. And then you visit your great-grandfather in an older part of town, and you find yourself in a house that is devoid of any Western influence or furniture and is, is extremely traditional. It's old-school Persian, if you will. But it is what you discover about behavior in those two very different houses that is your takeaway. Can you, can you explain for us? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in the modern house, you have a Italian setting, Italian furniture, Italian fashion, etc. In my great-grandfather's house, there are no chairs. We sit on the floor. We eat watermelons. Uh, there are no telephones. Nothing at all modern. However, on the surface, these look different. In At a deeper level, our behavior in the context is very similar. For example, in each context, there is a Bala, the top of the room, and Pain, the bottom of the room. And those who have high status sit Bala, hmm. sit at the top. I, as a mass student, youngster coming in, I sit next to the door, right at the bottom. When I sit down, I don't uh, allow the soles of my feet to show to others. I tuck them in. Whenever a high status person comes in, everybody stands up. And that is true 
for whether you're in the westernized Iranian house or whether you're in my great grandfather's house. So what I'm pointing out is the furniture, the surface things look different. But when you look at actual behavior, the deeper norms that guide behavior are the same. And then I point out that before and after the revolution, we had very different dictators. We had the Shah, westernized, skier, multilingual, uh, eloquent in many things. And we had Khomeini, Eastern, wearing uh, very traditional clothes, his wife with hijab. Now, on the surface, they look completely different. But underneath that, there is continuity in that you have a single male dictating to everybody else. Right. I'm going to come back to that particular point because I think there are people who would uh, take issue with with whataboutism uh, with the Shah and the current regime um, because uh, for many reasons, but uh, particularly in this moment. But let me let me come back to that because that's a that's a rich part of the conversation. On this point where you're talking about continuity of behavior, to use a non-Iranian example, uh, you use which I think is quite compelling. You use racism in America as an example of the limits of political plasticity. Tell us why the plight of African-Americans in the United States today is instructive. Absolutely. Uh, if you look at the history of ethnic relations in the United States, we start with uh, slavery and then the uh, banning of slavery. We have the Civil War. And if we look at the uh, logical uh, level of analysis where everything is formal, it looks as if we should be in a completely different world right now. But actually, underneath that, the subjugation of the African-Americans has continued. There's a new form of slavery. And that is what is continuous that's what i call low political plasticity so why um just on this point i mean you come at this from a psychological perspective uh, why in some cases is this dictum that if you change the laws uh, uh from above things will change you use the example of 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 uh the lgbtq Q community um you know uh once a f um uh same-sex marriage laws were changed in the united states it seems like attitudes changed as well why yeah. in that case is uh is the, is the population psychologically progressing but not in the case of the plight of african americans uh, that's a great question um i think my answer is that it's the strategy used by the minority. That's the key. Let me give you the example of women. Uh, at my university, uh, women were excluded. They couldn't do most of the programs until recently. Most universities were like that. Women were just excluded. When I joined my department, uh, the vast majority of faculty were men. There were very few females. Now it's reversed. Most the faculty are female. The top uh, programs like our PhD program is predominantly female. How has this come about? I think it came about because women stood up and said, 
we can compete with men directly. Just give us the chance to compete and we will do it. And they did it. They did not say, we are different. We want a different away, uh, approach to this. They did not celebrate differences. They celebrate uniformity. Hmm. And I think that strategic difference is key. Uh, in other publications, I have argued for what I call omniculturalism, which emphasizes human commonalities, against the celebration of differences and the highlighting of differences all the time. I think minorities are better served when they do what women have done and with what, what, what gays have done to compete directly and to say we want to be part of the mainstream that's the key well, that's uh, interesting stuff let me if we if we zoom out and yeah. it's rather than using those sort of identity politics you you cited a moment ago you were talking about the 1979 iranian revolution we have a we have um, newer examples, more contemporary examples of revolutions or attempted revolutions that have taken place. One of the things that you talk about to suggest that fundament, fundamental change has not come despite what would seem to be significant shifts in the politics of, of nations is the Arab Spring. Tell us what we learn from the Arab Spring that took place of, you know, 13, 14 years ago. The Arab Spring uh I see it as a second wave at the moment. We, has, we haven't finished yet, but the unfortunate thing about the Arab Spring was really the leadership, where extremists took over and tried to do too much, and then they were shut down, and then we had a return to dictatorship. For example, in Egypt. In Egypt, the Islamic Brotherhood came in, immediately tried to implement extremist policies. Women and other groups immediately realized the danger and they came back to dictatorship under the military. So in the Arab Spring countries, we've had this uh, tragic overstepping by the leadership. And uh, th this was a missed series of opportunities. Now. What I want to emphasize here is that political plasticity is not just about how much the population can change and how quickly. It's also about leadership. What kind of changes can the leadership bring about in their relationship with the population? In Iran, our biggest tragedy was that we had Khomeini and not Mandela after the revolution. Mm. See, Mandela is one of those rare individuals in history, like George Washington, who when they were handed power and given the opportunity to stay in power, right. said no. They said, I have my turn, then somebody else. We had the unfortunate uh, experience of having Khomeini and now Khamenei, who are both absolute dictators and refuse to give up power. They will, they will only give up power when they die. So this is a critical part of political plasticity. Right. To what extent does the leader allow change? But what is happening psychologically um, 
that limits political plasticity, a, a, a limitation amongst people, the population that you that you make the case that that shapes the possibility of change towards a more open and democratic society. What is happening with us psychologically? Is it that we're we get so used to a certain type of structure that even though we will it to be different or want it to be different, we we can't actually do that. Uh, yes, exactly. There are there are two sets of factors. One is the social skills we have. For example, here you and I are exchanging ideas. Just the free exchange of ideas requires social skills and a context to develop those social skills. That's one thing. Second thing is a set of cognitive capabilities and those co cognitive capabilities have to allow for tolerance for ambiguity, tolerance for ambiguity, seeing the world as complex, as interrelated, not thinking categorically. Categorical thinking is black and white thinking. This is good, this is bad. This is right, this is wrong. That kind of categorical thinking is common to populations in dictatorships because they've been taught to think that way. There are a number of psychological characteristics that are important. One of them is authoritarianism. In dictatorships, authoritarian personalities are supported and they support the authoritarian leader. Mm. At the moment, Khamenei's main support is from authoritarian males who hate the idea of, for example, liberated women, sure. uh, educated women. Yes. So th there are a number of psychological factors we can identify here. Um, let me let me try and use the case of Iran in particular uh, in this current moment to to test some of the the ideas that you put forth in this book around political plasticity. You you talk about how studies show that when people feel like their group identity is under threat, uh, they tend to be more supportive of authoritarian strongmen as leaders, less supportive of human rights and, de and democracy. And, and obviously this can be used to explain, for example, how Khomeini a consolidated national support by using the Iran-Iraq war to suggest citizens were under threat and needed to unite behind him. Uh, how might people feel like their group identity is under threat after a revolution this time? Were this regime to be toppled, um, uh, with the with the premise of the toppling being that we want to get rid of mullahs who have shown a disdain for democracy and dissent, what is going to be the the um, threat to this group identity that would enable an authoritarian personality to then take over after that? Um, that's an excellent question. Uh, after every revolution, the general trend of revolutions is that initially moderates come to power. For example, after 1979, you had Mazar gone and a number of other relatively moderates. I mean, from my perspective, Bazargan was not actually a moderate, but he's relative to Khomeini, he was a moderate. For a few months, sure. Yes. 
And then so you have these moderates coming into power. It happens again and again, French Revolution, Russian Revolution. Then uh, a number of events happen that lead the moderates to, to be weakened. And then you have a radical revolutionary leader like Lenin, like Mao, like Khomeini, like um, others, who, Cuban situation, jumping ahead and taking power. They grab power. Now, that radical revolutionary leader often uses external and internal threats mm. to galvanize support from authoritarians within his society. And it's usually he. It's not a woman dictator. And this radical revolutionary leader uses threats. Now, what kind of threats could come up after the next revolution? Well, the threat of invasion is always there. The threat of invasion. The threat of disunity. For example, the idea that the Kurds want to break up the country. The Baluchis are rebels. You see, these threats work to limit people's support for human rights. Mm. Another one I can see being tried is the threat of liberated women. Because we know that in Iran, there is a group, a substantial group of authoritarian males, typically low in education, who are threatened by liberated women and educated women. And this will be used by the opponents of the next revolution. There's no doubt. They will galvanize authoritarian but that's, that's This is the point of the revolution. <laughs> it's called mm -hmm. women life freedom. I mean, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's the yeah. point of the revolution. But we can predict what will be the opposition and where they ba their base will come from. And then somebody would use that opposition to say, to to you know proclaim a kind of an authoritarian leadership to to say where our, our new revolution is under threat. Well, that could happen, or it could be that the um, the opponents of revolution will use that in a Machiavellian mm -hmm. way to weaken the society. Right. Right. Another thing that in the contemporary context of Iran and this uprising that is interesting um, that you talk about in the book is is that you don't necessarily talk about the mo this moment in Iran, but I want to ask you about it, it's, is you talk about the hardwiring of individuals. And this is, I, I guess you're talking about continuity of behavior that it's, it, we see as hardwired, no matter what is happening, no matter what what is happening, as you would say, on the surface level, politically or in nation states or over a period of time. How does that, this theory of hardwiring of individuals, i.e., to put it simply, individuals not changing their behavior, intersect mm -hmm. with the current youth of Iran? Because would they not be, as I'm reading this in, in your book, I'm thinking, aren't the current youth of Iran an example of the opposite of hardwiring? That is that despite being born into the Islamic Republic, uh, even mm -hmm. despite their own parents in some cases, yeah. they are rejecting what is their expected behavior, you know, and deference to this theocratic state and pushing for everything from women's rights to fair votes to collectivism. So where do we locate them in this hardwired spectrum? In any discussion about behavior, 
we're talking about a spectrum. Not everybody behaves the same way. And the youth of Iran have been impacted by global trends at, through the internet. So they are a very special case. And I see them as having more dynamic, uh, less rigid ways of thinking. And I see them as being less influenced by traditional Iranian leader-follower relationships. One of the challenges in Iran has been that when we grew up in families, we learned our relationship with the leader through the family. And that was part of what I call the external hardwiring that remained intact so that inevitably in that context, you had somebody like Khamenei having a really high probability of becoming a strong dictator because he had that rigid pattern of behavior learnt in the population. Mm. But the, the, the youth of Iran are the hope and women in particular are the hope because they are breaking this pattern. So, so it is possible to break the hardwiring. Yes, it's definitely possible. And uh, women are leading the way and showing how to do it. Uh, what I'm pointing out are the limitations. For example, in one chapter, I talk about the built environment. Mm. What do I mean by that? Well, um, the housing, the planning, the city, that is very slow to change. Let me give you an example. After the 1917 revolution, when the Bolsheviks, who were a minority, like the Khomeini crowd, they were a minority who grabbed power through force. They killed more people than, than anybody else. And they grabbed force. Uh, they grabbed power. Now, they wanted to change the family structure. What was stopping them? One of the things what, that was stopping them was architecture. The size of houses, the way housing was built. So they would shove hundreds of people in the same building and organize the apartments in different ways to try to change behavior. But they couldn't rebuild the city fast enough. The changes they wanted in the family never materialized. When I said earlier that some people are going to... Um, um find this deflating i want to come at different ways of of, of um, bringing this to you or asking you about it or even challenging you challenging you on it it's because um it seems like the democracy the freedom movement for iran currently is not just potentially swimming upstream in terms of toppling this um extremely barbaric iron-fisted regime but swimming upstream in, ter in terms of the, the trends in contemporary in our world. Uh, mm -hmm. And you talk about when it comes to undemocratic leadership models and continuity, um, not only have we, on a global scale, not done a great job as humans of building 
collectivist societies that reflect collective democratic leaderships. We've done quite the opposite. The 21st century has no shortage of strongmen, as you point out. So we look at China around, right now with Xi Jinping, uh, India with Modi, uh, Russia with Putin, Turkey with Erdogan. And depending on who you ask, you can throw in all kinds of other countries in there, Venezuela, Hungary, North Korea, many others. And we can see many of those tendencies even in so-called democratic countries with popularly elected leaders as well. So what does that tell us? He asks, fearful of the answer, about the chances of Iran achieving a democratic leadership, even if we overthrow this current despotic regime. I am very, very hopeful, but my hope is based on the idea that we must have knowledge first. Knowledge will give us power. And the knowledge I am presenting is this picture of long-term change with a focus on things like leadership. We have to understand what leadership has involved and by understanding it, we can change it. We have to understand the road to the democracy that has been lengthy from Athens 2,500 years ago. And we have to understand the changes that have taken place and what the limitations have been and how we can overcome those limitations. Let me give you another example. Uh, when I give talks on psychology of democracy and dictatorship, Americans often challenge me and say, well, you're not giving enough credit to the American Revolution. Okay, let's give credit to the American Revolution. Uh, the Constitution of the United States gave the vote to free men, not to slaves, not to women. And the Americans say, well, this is this is a breakthrough at least. Well, I point out that 2,500 years ago in Athens, free men, not women, not slaves, had the vote. After that, the Roman Republic actually had, I think, a good representation in the Senate. Look, there have been different types of exercises in democracies mm -hmm. over the last at least 2,500 years. Mm -hmm. We have to understand where the changes came, be realistic about how they came, and then build on that. So that's where I'm hopeful. That's where I'm hopeful. But of course, when you have a revolution, it is based on hope and aspiration. And people often when I give a talk on political plasticity, they say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, that seems pessimistic. Well, um, on the face of it, it is pessimistic. I mean, yeah, you know, no, have you been to I, I, any demonstrations recently? I mean, the, right. people are people are desperately hoping for um, you know a a uh, a democratic future in Iran or free Iran, as we say, and for example, I mean, other places in the world too. But you know, for for in terms of the Iranian community, and. Um, you know, hearing that, well, if you go back thousands of years in history, the chances are pretty dim, buddy. You know, that's that's a tough pill to take, right? Um, no, I think it's very optimistic in the sense that we have made progress across history. Um, again, I would go back to the situation of women. 
look at the situation of women compared to even a hundred years ago. Look at the rights they have achieved. Look at the improvements in their lives. Okay, well, that's a good point. So how far are we supposed to take the notion of continuity and limits of, of political plasticity? Because surely we can we can see that, say, social or cultural or, I don't know, practical plasticity can be achieved in short term, right? When it comes to toppling the current regime in, in Iran, w- w- would yes. not the ability of women to have dominion over how they, they wish to dress and the ability of young people to sing rock songs and dance and drink and express political dissent without being executed represent yeah. fundamental change. I mean, it's not that, not quite a simple proposition then that getting rid of this current regime could not achieve those goals. No, I agree with you. It will achieve those goals because this regime is so atrocious, so tyrannical that you don't have to move much to get an improvement. All you have to do is give women equal rights by law and you will transform Iran. Iran will be transformed as soon as women have but that, equal so rights. So that is, that is plasticity, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Okay. So in some areas I'm saying plasticity will come quickly. Okay. And well, yeah. well then let me bring back the, then, then how do we judge continuity? Because when you said earlier, we, we, we went from the Shah's period into the, the Khomeini era and there was continuity of authoritarianism, you know, and with all due respect to many people who've come on this show and talked about the imperfections of the, the Pahlavi era and, and yes. you know, all yes. of the, the crackdowns on dissent and, and lack of democracy, etc. But I think if you polled the Iranian community globally right now and said, you know, if you could snap your fingers and choose 1978, uh, you know, pre-Islamic revolution or today, people would, would, would you know, not, con- not consider those the same thing and would happily gravitate towards uh, the, the late 70s before the revolution. So, so how, how do we see that as continuity? Well, I see it as continuity in the sense that Uh, From my analysis, the Pahlavi era led to this era. We would not have been in this era if it had not been for the Pahlavis. In fact, if you look at the factual analysis of religion in Iran, it was the Pahlavis who supported the Muslim uh, churches, the, the mosques. They extended the network of the mullahs. They did all of that because they thought, advised by the CIA, that the main threat to their rule was from the Marxists. Hmm. They thought we will use Islam to hammer the Marxists, ruin the left, and we will rule. The conditions were enabled for a Khomeini-type regime to to sweep in. in. In his brilliant book on the Shah, Uh, Dr. Milani gives statistics on how many um, mosques were built during the Pahlavi era. He shows how they expanded the mosque system. I've discussed it in my work. Uh, So from my perspective, there is continuity because the Pahlavis led to the Islamic Republic. Let me ask you about leadership then, because it's something that you've you've mentioned a few times. There's been an ongoing debate in the Iranian community in the last two or three months 
about how much we should be focusing on identifying who the current leaders of the opposition to this Islamic Republic regime are, especially in the diaspora, and how much time and energy we should be putting into deciding who represents us. Where, Where do you stand on these kinds of debates? Before the current regime has been dethroned, if it's going to happen, do you think they're helpful and proactive or unhelpful? I think they're very helpful if we make sure we push women forward as leaders. We've got to have a situation where if there are 20 people in the leadership vicinity, at least half of them are women. And that I see to be critical, not just as this phase, but when this regime falls, and I hope it falls sooner, there must be women in the leadership at the national level. And I would love to see the first prime minister, the first president to be a female. That's the way we've got to go. And that I see uh, there are so many highly capable women who could do this. And that's the breakthrough we need to make. You end your book talking about how women are the future, and I'm going to end this interview asking you about that. Um, Before we get there, what role might new technology play in challenging the, the limits of political plasticity to an extent? I know you've argued that the existence of new media alone has not necessarily changed things in and of itself. You cite the example of Uh, Donald Trump and an authoritarian leader, many would say, harnessing Twitter and social media tools that were meant to make us more democratic. In his case, they were harnessed to win power. But the facility, Dr. Moradam, of uh, societal communication is having a different effect as well, where members of the citizenry have access to each other in ways that they never have before. And so in recent months, you've had Iranians for example, telling each other not to share the current regime's propaganda, you know, having some success in crowdsourcing, holding each other to account. Do you believe there is something there that can that can undermine those traditional limits to plasticity, as you call them? Uh, yes, I believe you're right. Uh, technology can play a very important role in changing the uh, level of political plasticity. But technology is not neutral. It is from us that it gets its direction. And we have to give it direction. And technology has already played a very important role in mobilizing young people in Iran. That's got to continue. And of course, we've got to use technology to change our relationship with the leadership Mm. and to push women forward to give women more opportunities to come forward we have tremendous talent among iranian women inside and outside iran that is going to be the transformation in iranian society where leadership comes from women that'll transform us it it could transform the world could certainly transform the region right absolutely and and um you know one of the things we have to overcome is this rigidity in our relationship with leadership. As I point out in the book, 10, 12,000 years of settlements and most, almost all of that time, it's been male leaders, older male leaders. We've got to change that. 
that is going to change our relationships with one another and with the leadership. Okay, I have a million dollar question for you. Are you ready? At, at one point in your book, you make the case that we, um, we can often be victims of what you call bad advice that we too naively eat up this kind of advice when, especially when we're in a revolutionary context or a time of change. And you cite the example of being told um, Khomeini, for example, would retire. If he, if he returned to Iran in the late 1970s, he wouldn't even be interested in a role in politics. He, of course, said these kinds of things. And yeah. you talk about how dictators can emerge when the conditions are present for such emergence, springboards. How do we, Dr. Mogadam, mitigate uh, or guard against that in the current context? How do we know if certain de facto leaders in the current opposition to the regime, men or women, would keep their words in terms of the language they're speaking today, the openness, the democracy, the unity, uh, or would turn into the very dictators uh, that we're trying to oppose if they were given the opportunity? I think the way to do it is to be inclusive and um, as open as possible in leadership in the first phase. You remember I mentioned that in the first phase of revolutions, typically moderates come to power and then emergencies arise, wars are created, crisis incidents are created so that a dictator can take over. This is what Khomeini did with the hostage taking, with the Iran-Iraq war. What we've got to do is have that inclusive group of leaders with lots of women included in that first phase and then lock that in, lock that in to prevent the next phase of uh, typically of revolutions where the, the extremist leader jumps to power. What does it mean, lock that in? What does that mean? Lock that in in the sense of the law. The law has to be changed. Obviously, the constitution needs changing. Velayat Fari has to go first. You see, the constitution has to immediately be changed and locked in. And that has to be guarded by everybody. So that's the key. The, the most dangerous phase of a revolution is not the regime change phase. It is the phase when moderates have come in, then there's usually rising expectations and chaos, like 79 Iran, in Iran. The moderates were in, there was chaos and rising expectations. People mm -hmm. wanted so much. And then... Khomeini used crisis incidents. He used the hostage taking, he used the Iran-Iraq war, which he refused to end. It could have ended after the second year, he yeah. refused to end it. Because it was benefiting him, yes. Absolutely. So we have to be guarding against that phase of the revolution. So you have to kind of prevent the oxygen being in in the room for there to be so much volatility that somebody wants to, that somebody can take advantage of that and co-opt uh, the, the revolution. Um, that's a, I mean, that's a tough thing to plan for when you don't know exactly how the chips are going to fall in a, in, you know, overturning. You can, a, plan. you can plan for it. You can plan for it because 
revolutions and what happens after them are fairly predictable. And you can predict that within the first year of the moderates, of the the less uh, extreme groups coming in, within the first year, there will be attempts to take over by extremists. You can predict that. You've got to change the constitution very quickly, not spend a long time on that. And you've got to lock in the safeguards very quickly. And of course, you've got to manage expectations. After revolutions, people have very high expectations that leads to relative deprivation and more efforts to change the regime. These are all fairly predictable from a psychological perspective. Let me ask you about something that you don't specifically cite in the book. Um, the book's not just about Iran in, the, in, in, in this moment, so uh, it's not a surprise. But that would seem to me to be something that would limit political plasticity in the future of Iran and the, the chances of an open and democratic and free Iran. Um, and that is something that you're probably familiar with, both, uh, both as a psychologist and as an Iranian. Um, that is that we mistrust each other or that there's trust issues that come from the trauma of recent decades or even further back. And that this seems to be a big um, hurdle for our global community right now, grappling with the, 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 the intention or the understanding that we need to be unified. Um, yes. And yet the, the knee-jerk um, sort of disunity that comes from attacking each other or not liking this leader or this representative or um, bringing up uh, past ideologies or, or, or um, uh, issues. H- how important will that unity be um, to sort of um, prosecuting this, this revolution and, uh, for a free Iran? And how much of a challenge is it for our community? Uh, I would make three points. One is that uh, the evil regime in Tehran is uh, actively trying to sow mistrust among Iranians. That's its job. That's what it's doing. Second is that, yes, we need to develop more trust, and that comes through leadership. But a third point I would make is that Iranians have to put this in the global context. If you look at surveys, international surveys, trust is lower, not just among Iranians. Mm. In all major societies, people have less trust of institutions, of politicians, of one another. So trust has declined in the world. It's not just Iranians. And we, you know, that's a separate debate about why trust has declined. Um, we've had a couple of psychologists or therapists who've come on the program in, uh, in recent months and said that they believe, um, no matter the outcome, obviously they want the outcome to be affirmative in terms of a, a free Iran, but that they believe that this past few months for the global Iranian community through all the ups and downs has been um, like a collective healing or catharsis or uh, like one big 
freaking, you know, therapy session for a, a global community. Do you, would you see it that way as a psychologist uh, or do you think that's maybe overstating things? Um, I'm not a therapist. I, I always tell people I don't do anything useful. I just do research and publish <laughs> and teach. So um, I wouldn't want to tread in that area because you've had experts in therapy talk about that. Um, what I can say is in terms of the cognitive and political processes, there has been more unity in opposition to this regime and that can bring benefits to people individually and collectively. So I see more unity in opposition to this regime, and that is always a good thing. All right, let's end where we started, and you said that um, the hope that resides for you with this, with the current situation in Iran and the hope that you end your book with and the hope that I said I wanted to end the interview with is with um, women uh, and women leading um, the, the way. Uh, and it's interesting that you wrote this book and that your the, the end of your book is about how you believe the future is in women and, and this this revolution that's taking place in Iran uh, has in fact been uh, started and led by women, supported by men, of course, and, and, and youth uh, at the forefront. Uh, you believe women are the most important key to progress towards expanding political plasticity and moving towards actualized democracy. So not just in the context of Iran, but globally, tell us what you mean. Yes, I think globally, we're going to be moving towards what I call actualized or fully developed democracy if and when we allow women to come in and to take up leadership positions in a much more effective way than we have been doing. I think one of the shortcomings in the United States is that we have not allowed women to come through at the presidential level. Uh, the attempts that have been made have been made by women attached to males like Hillary Clinton. I don't think that's a very useful way to do it. We need women who are competent, independent, and representative of uh, the rest of society. So why do I think the advancement of women is going to solve many problems. First of all, I focus on things like uh, overpopulation and um, global warming. When you have women coming into higher education and the workforce, you have less problems of overpopulation. Population control is necessarily uh, going to be solved. When you have women in positions of political power, we know from research that they give more importance to health, education, welfare, these issues. So I'm pushing this line because I think it would be beneficial not just for Iran, but for all of the world. We need more representation and families will also become more balanced. When you have more balanced families, you have more uh, balanced children, healthier children. One of the problems with the Iranian regime right now is family law. Women have no power in families. 
Uh, and this is highly destructive, highly destructive, because it creates a context where children are brought up in very, very uh, destructive situations, psychologically destructive. So I think family law, parity for women, these will all lead to healthier societies, not just for Iran, but for the globe. It's so good having you on. Let me ask you a final question, a, a personal question. Um, the last time we had you on, it was actually before this uprising. It was a, a year, a year and a half ago. I don't, I don't know. And 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 you you told you talked a little bit about your personal uh, story of of um, your frustration and and the hurt at having to leave Iran after the uh, the 1979 revolution when you couldn't do the kind of work that you wanted to do and have the kind of freedom you wanted. Um, what what has it been like for you as the person who writes about democracy and uh, dictatorships uh, observing the last six months uh, in the context of Iran? It's been highly inspiring. I've really been inspired by the youth of Iran, uh, the challenges they have taken up, and I have been humbled really humbled thinking how little I've done compared to them. So that's my personal reaction. And um, it, I'm really proud of what has happened. And uh, I'm also at the same time, uh, just horrified by the evil of this regime. Uh, there's no doubt that compared to the Pahlavi regime, this regime is much more evil. It is a truly horrific evil regime. So when I see continuity in Iran, I'm not saying this regime is, is the same as the last one. Mm. What I'm saying is we do see continuity, but this is a terrible, terrible regime that has to be overthrown. And I'm really inspired by young people leading the way to that regime change. Thank you for the, the taking the time. Um, it's always, always an inspired conversation, a spirited conversation having you on. I'm sure we'll get um, all kinds of um, reaction and, and um, uh, uh, it'll, there's, there's so many points in this chat that have been um, provocative and interesting for our audience to respond to. So uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to you for the time and, and for, the, um, for the education. It's my pleasure and honor. Thank you very much. Hope to see you again. Merci. Khudafis. For the office. Dr. Fatali M. Mogadam, the psychologist, the academic, the author, the professor. Again, his new book is entitled Political Plasticity. He joined us from Washington, D.C. If you have any comments on that interview, uh, or you want to um, um, agree, disagree, uh, ask questions about the book, make any comments, you can do so on any of our platforms, of course, or you can email us at info at rookmedia.com. That's still also a possibility for feedback. Um, thank you to Dr. Moradam, and thank you to the amazing team who put this show together. This is full time for Rook for today. Savvy Roham, talented Anahita, Parisa, Pega, Meritod, Shaya, and um, and the new Negin, who has been auditing the show today and potentially will be joining our team. We'll tell you more about her in the coming days. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't done so already on 
any or all of our platforms. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. You can become uh, a Rook member on Patreon by going to our website, rookmedia.com, and following the Support Us link. In the meantime, as ever, Mizunbashin.